Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello, ahoy, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is the show where we unpack all the secrets inside the universe. And uh, reminds me, I'm I'm delighted to say this, you you might remember last year, uh, it was amazing. We won the award for best podcast in the history of the universe ever. And uh, we've only got to won it again. I can't believe it. Uh, I, I, I don't know how they found us. Uh, I don't know who submitted the entry, but we've done it. Bed po- best podcast in the history of the universe, second year in a row. Uh, and we're celebrating this week with a big episode. We're taking a look at one of the most deadly birds in the world. Also, why people are making a proper movie in space. And you can hear where the UK is getting its own spaceport. That's coming up first. Uh, let's jump into it with one of our favourite geniuses on the show. This is Professor Hallux. Professor Hallux builds a body. It's produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Hello again, medical movers. I'm Nurse Nanobot. And it's time to join Professor Hallux again in his laboratory. Well, he calls it a laboratory. It's more like a storm in a school kitchen. What a mess. Beakers and test tubes all over the place. Piles of old lab coats all over the floor and a dozen threadbare skeletons blocking every exit. And what's that I can hear? Something's boiling over on the Bunsen burner. Brainbox Professor Hallux is attempting to build his very own human body, full of all those gory but very important bits. Let's find out what he's up to today. Hi there, and welcome back to my lab. It really could use a tidy up, but I had to use the vacuum cleaner to suck up a load of eyeballs I dropped the other day. It hasn't been the same since. So my work building a body continues, and today we're adding the ears. Those jug handles on the side of your bonts, the wing nuts, the grubby old lug holes your mum tells you to clean behind. Your ears are in charge of collecting sounds, processing them, and sending sound signals to your brain. But that's not all. Ears also help you keep your balance. You tell them, Nurse Nanobot, whilst I start rolling out this cartilage. The ear is made up of three different sections. The outer ear, the middle ear and the inner ear. These parts all work together so you can hear and process sounds. The outer gristly part of the ear you can see is called the oracle. Its job is to collect sounds like a funnel and point them into a hole. This hole is called the ear's canal. And that's where you find earwax. Good old earwax. Although it's icky and sticky, it's got an important job. It stops stuff sliding into your middle ear and has special chemicals to keep out infections. 
tell them about that bit, nurse. Sound waves travel down the ear canal and vibrate the eardrum. A thin piece of skin stretched tight like a drum, which separates the outer ear from the middle ear. Another term for the eardrum is the tympanic membrane, which comes from the same word as tympani, the big kettle drums used in orchestras. Vibrations from the eardrum are transmitted through three amazing tiny bones called ossicles that help deliver sound waves into the inner ear. Those clever ossicles have some funny names. The first ossicle is called the malleus, which is attached to the eardrum and means hammer in Latin. Next is the incus, which is attached to the malleus and means anvil. The third is the stapes. This is the smallest bone in the body. It's the same width as the edge of a one-pound coin and is attached to the incus and means stirrup. It even looks like a tiny stirrup. Imagine how small the horse would have to be. It would be an ickle horse. Or should that be an ossicle? <laughs> Very funny, Professor. So... Once the sound has gone through the eardrum and ossicles, the vibrations move through a curled tube called the cochlea. The cochlea is full of liquid, so the movement is like a wave. Tiny hairs along the walls of the tube move as the wave passes, and every hair sends nerve signals to the brain, creating the sensation of sound. The inner ear also contains the part that helps control balance as well. Above the cochlea are three small loops called semicircular canals. Like the cochlea, they're also filled with liquid and have thousands of hairs which move when the liquid moves. It is these little loops that helps us keep our balance. The hairs can sense whether the liquid is tipping this way or that or moving around and around. Messages are sent to the brain, which then reacts to keep us steady. Sometimes we feel dizzy if we've been spinning around or moving very quickly in different directions. That swooshing liquid carries on moving after we've stopped and that can make our brains very confused. That might have happened to you after you've got off a fairground waltzer. After a while, the liquid settles down again. You feel better again and then head off for another ride. Now, back to someone who's never dizzy. Let's see how the professor is getting on. Professor! Professor! Turn it down, Professor! Sorry, can't hear you. I'll have to turn the music down. That's better. can hear you now. I was welding the oracles onto my body's bonds and had my ear protectors on. Not because I don't like the song, but because loud noises like music or machinery can hurt ears. Those tiny hairs get damaged when the vibrations are too strong. And once you've damaged your hearing, it's gone for good. Or at least can give you tinnitus. A really annoying ringing sound in your ears all the time. That's why people who work in noisy environments wear ear protectors or earplugs. You should too when you're around noisy machines and never play music too loud through your headphones. Another way to keep your hearing healthy 
is to not poke things in your ears. You might think you're cleaning them, but you're only more likely to just shove the earwax all to one end and add a whole load of germs in too. If your ears feel blocked up, chances are that you might have an ear infection, making the walls of the ear puffy, or a build-up of compacted wax, and no amount of digging about is going to help. Get yourself to the doctor. Horrible old anatomy fact. Talking of tinnitus, that constant ringing or whooshing sound in ears, it's a very common problem, and over the centuries, medics have tried to cure it. The Egyptians believed that a ringing ear was bewitched and would tip a brew of oil, frankincense, tree sap, herbs and soil into the ear with a reed stalk to help remedy the problem. It's unlikely that this cured any problems. The soil certainly would not have helped. Although olive oil is still used to break up earwax in ears that are blocked up. Ha! If you think that pouring mud into an ear is crazy, the Middle Ages were just as bad and a Welsh treatment recommended to take a loaf of hot bread, dividing it into two, and put it in each ear, as hot as you can take it, and thus perspire. And by the help of God, you would be cured. Sounds like a waste of toast to me. My body has lovely, clean and clear ears, so no need for any loaves in these lug holes. Disgusting detail. Now, we've already talked about icky, sticky earwax. Useful stuff but not very pretty. Did you know it was used in the past as a lip balm and monks used it to colour in ancient texts? Ooh! wonder how they got enough to stick on a paintbrush. They must have had very waxy ears. Talking of waxy ears, one of the ways to age a whale is by the amount of earwax they have. Although you might have a job finding their ears in the first place. They don't have big flappy ones that might slow them down. Right. My amazing body has his ears all ready to go. I've drilled in the cochlea, riveted on the oracles and brushed all the tiny hairs. Let's let the lightning loose! Brilliant! It's worked! My body has extraordinary excellent ears. That's my work done for today. I'm off to get a cup of tea and a slice of cake. Next time, we'll be giving our body a mouth and a tongue and taste buds so he can have one too. Bye for now. Professor Hullock's Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Let's get to your questions then. Uh, this is where you send your sciencey questions to me. I look through all the science stuff, knock it around that I can find. I become a sciencey Sherlock and I dig out the answer for you. Uh, you just need to leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. There's a little comment box at the bottom. That's where you say hello. Uh, give us five stars so I can see it and your name as well so I can say hello, uh, which I can't do on this one. There's no name. But they ask, why do we get pins and needles? And also, why are they called pins and needles? It's something called temporary paresthesia. When you put too much pressure on your arm or your leg, where you lean on it when you're asleep or sitting down or something, you pinch the nerves and the blood vessels that are in it. Now, nerves carry information to your brain. And when you release that pressure, 
the blood flows back to your nerves and they start firing stuff to your brain again. And they do it so quickly. There's so much of it going on because they haven't for a while. There's this rush of information uh, and it makes you feel all tingly. And it's called Pins and Needles because it feels like pins and needles. Thank you for the question, though. Leave your name next time. This one is from Oscar, who is seven, who's asked maybe the most exciting question we've ever had. Thank you for this, Oscar. If boxes are made out of cardboard, what is cardboard made out of? Uh, Cardboard is made out of something called flute and also pulp. It's recycled paper, squashed between more recycled paper. It's all thick, recycled paper. Nice to know that when you're using cardboard, it can be recycled and the circle goes around and around and around. Thank you for the question, Oscar. Uh, If you've got something sciencey that you want answered on the show next week, leave your name for me and write it over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We're talking time this week, time and how it works around the world and how we help ships with it and how we help trains with it and how we look up into the sky and help satellites and things with it. Uh, We're headed to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Uh, It's just down the road from where I am, actually, in London. We're speaking to the curator, Louise DeVoy. She's with us. Louise, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Quite often when I do interviews for the Science Weekly, there's maybe a point to them. You know, I'm I'm here for a very specific story, but I, I was at the Royal Observatory recently and I like every part of it blew my mind. I just have so many questions. So I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, just tell us what the actual observatory is and how it came to be in Greenwich, why it's there. So the observatory was founded in 1675 to help improve navigation at sea. So imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean. You've got no landmarks, nothing to tell you where you are. All you've got are the sun, moon and stars above you. So you can measure lots of angles in the sky. You can figure out your local time, but you need to compare that with somewhere at a known location, say like Greenwich. So if you do your observations and you know that it's one o'clock, if you know that someone at Greenwich is measuring the same stars, but for them it's four o'clock, you can use that to tell where you are because every hour the Earth is rotating 15 degrees. So that three-hour time difference means you're now 45 degrees from Greenwich. It's really clever once you start to get your head around it. So it was really hard then for the astronomers at Greenwich to start producing all of these angles and data tables that navigators could use at sea. You say degrees, just very quickly, degrees of what? Like, what are we tracking the degrees to and from? What does that mean? Sure. So you have to imagine dividing up your location into two coordinates. So how far north or south you are of the equator, the big sort of ring, if you like, around the centre of the Earth. And then how far east or west you are of a certain place, say like Greenwich. So if a full turn would be 360 degrees, half a turn would be 180 degrees, just like a normal circle. So GMT, what is in it? I, I guess maybe what's in it now, but also what was in it at the time that made it so useful for people trying to get around the world all those years ago? Sure. So Greenwich Mean Time, or GMT as we call it, is a way of converting solar time into clock time. Because actually, if we just tried to rely on the sun for telling the time, we'd find that it wasn't exactly 24 hours. It, It varies by a couple of minutes every day. So astronomers at Greenwich created this sort of average or mean day of 24 hours that we can use all year round, whatever the weather, and we can use that with our clocks. So that's why we use GMT. And people just started to find it really useful for lots of different things and started using it more. What what tools have you got in there that 
studies the sun that lets people know is there a huge telescope what is in it we have a fantastic range of instruments so we have lots of sundials that you can use to measure time by the sun we have clocks that uh, are based on a pendulum so the swinging of a pendulum other clocks that are based on the vibrations of a crystal a quartz clock and even quite an early atomic clock as well so using vibrations in atoms to measure time (laughs) what amazes me is It all seems so perfect, doesn't it? We go around the sun, well, we spin on our axis more or less in a day. We go around the sun more or less in a year. What is a second? Like, how have we created this beautiful breakdown of time? Is there a distinct definition of what a second is? When you see the clock with the pendulum that swings up and down and up, is that natural? Have we designed it that way? It's really difficult. So we can define a second either as perhaps an angle of rotation of the Earth, or we can measure it in terms of these vibrations of of, um, atoms, where it can be up to about 9 billion times, 9 billion vibrations a second. So you can measure it in lots of different ways. And people have tried different technologies over time to do this. So what what atoms are vibrating 9 billion times a second? All atoms? It's usually like the cesium. We can um, stimulate it using microwaves, and then we get these vibrations, and we can use that to create these very accurate clocks. That's amazing. Has it always been this way? I mean, what were people doing four or five hundred years ago to try and find their way around the the, the ocean to try and tell the time? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We take time for granted, but actually it depends what you need it for. So, for example, if you were living and working in the countryside, then you just needed to rely on the sun. And that was perfectly adequate. But it's not until the Industrial Revolution when people just are starting to work in factories. They're indoors. They can't see the sun. You might be working a certain number of hours to get your pay. That's when clock time starts to become more important than, say, solar time. And that's when GMT really starts to become useful. So that's kind of the late 1800s. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So what happened before that? If I was wanted to get on my horse and cart and go from London to Manchester, how would I know what the time was? How would I what would I set my watch to? Yes. So you would use a sundial. So this is a gadget that casts a shadow and that effectively tells you how far the sun has traveled across the sky and gives you a sense of how many hours of daylight you have left. So if you know that it takes you four hours to ride to Manchester or wherever you're from, uh, but you've only got two hours of daylight left, then you might skip it and do it another day. <laughs> so, so cities all around the country here in the UK, that they were doing their own methods of looking at the sun to figure out the time? Yes. So certainly um, up until sort of the early 19th century, um, each town and city would have its own public clocks, say on a town hall or a church, and those would be set by sundars. So then you get a whole variation. So, for example, if you had a clock in London, it might say 12, but a clock in Liverpool would be about 12 minutes behind because Liverpool is further west. You've got to wait those extra 12 minutes for the Earth to rotate before it gets to the same point. So it would be really confusing trying to have all these different places. Or if you went to, say, went to Norwich, um, the clocks there would be five minutes faster than your clock from London. So it just got so confusing that eventually in the 1840s, people started to use GMT across the whole country. And this made life a lot easier, especially for planning railway journeys and timetables. If everyone's using the same time, it's a lot easier. It's amazing that that's in such small detail. The difference between one place and two places might be 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. But if I want to travel to America now, I've got to set my watch back six hours. Why is that? 
Yes. So eventually there was um, a big call to try and unify time standards across the globe because it was getting so confusing. People were traveling more. There was a lot more telegraph communications. And so instead it was decided to divide the earth up into these sort of 24 approximate time zones and allocate a time zone to each part of the earth. And then you could set your clock accordingly. And it just, again, it made life so much easier. Was everyone happy about that? No, it took some persuasion. <laughs> yes, yeah, some people weren't too convinced or they were, they were just happy using their local time. But I think as people started to travel more, they realised just how much easier it was. And we have difference of time within a year with, is it daylight savings when time moves forwards and backs throughout the year? Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? That's right. Yes, that, that all stems from saving energy back during the First World War. So people were using lots of coal for heating and lighting at home. And the government realised that actually they were running out of coal that they needed to supply the factories to make all the weapons and the tanks and so on. So they decided to adjust the clock so that people would use less coal for heating and lighting in the evenings. So it's really a legacy of that. We're still doing it today. So nothing to do with farming? A little bit later on, yes, there were some debates about whether it was easier for farmers to have lighter evenings or lighter mornings as well. But people have chopped and changed a lot over the last wow. century. I thought it was way older than that, that it was, you know, people ploughing the fields, that it was just easier to get it done earlier in the day. But it, it's all to do with the First World War. First World War, yeah. Yeah. 1916 is when we first started, certainly here in the UK, to do that. You're more of a time expert than, than many, many, many people, everyone I know. Uh, and you, you said that we've still got this daylight saving thing and it might not be necessary today. Do you see it carrying on? It's potential. I mean, now we we think about energy in terms of, say, saving electricity rather than coal per se. But um, there are still lots of debates about whether now that we've got um, new technologies like LED, maybe it's better to save energy by using those sort of lighting systems rather than changing our clocks. Um, so there are still lots of debates about it. So the Royal Observatory was started to help people navigating the world, but now we're navigating so much more. We're headed into space. Uh, what's the Royal Observatory doing that, doing with that, with satellites and with rockets? How does it help out there? Sure. So when the observatory first started, it was very much about navigation, timekeeping, plotting the positions of the stars. But then in the last um, sort of 150 years or so, the astronomers realised that they could use other technologies to start sort of probing into space even more. So the biggest change really was photography. So you can now start to use cameras to see further, to see distant galaxies and gas clouds. So really starting to change our, our perception of what's up there in space. There's also a technology that you may not have heard of. It's called spectroscopy. And it's basically splitting starlight into a sort of rainbow-like pattern what? and looking, looking at all these patterns of light and you can tell which chemicals are in the stars. It's really clever. So two things. How do you split starlight? Mm -hmm. So you use a piece of glass called a prism or you can use a series of very fine metal lines called a grating and that splits the starlight. And what use is that to us? That tells us which chemicals are in the stars. So normally if you wanted to know what chemicals are in something, you'd take a sample yeah. and you'd analyse it in a lab. But obviously you can't do that with the stars. They're so far away. So we, instead, all we've got are just some light. So we have to split that and then we can analyse it and we can tell exactly what type of chemicals and how much are in the stars. Because we know what chemicals make certain colours. That's right, yeah. So you can also look at certain colours as well. And sometimes the colours can indicate uh, certain chemical elements. We can also look and see if the lines are shifted slightly, whether the star is moving towards us or away from us. There's just so much information embedded in that light. Is there a reason why Greenwich is so important for time around the world? Why was it, 
why is there a Royal Observatory in Greenwich? Was it how much of a reason to that is there, or is it was it just a bit random? It was a little bit random. I mean, it was mainly founded there because there was some uh, a plot of land that was available. And also, let's remember, at that time, Greenwich was quite a bit out of the city of London. So it had good visibility. The observatory is up on a hill as well. So you've got a great view of the horizon. But gradually over the centuries, the city expanded, the skies got more polluted. And that's when the observatory had to close later in the 1940s. If I were to go to the Royal Observatory today, what would I see? You would see a fantastic range of um, historic buildings. We have, of course, the Prime Meridian, the historic line marking out zero degrees longitude. So you can find your location anywhere on the planet in relation to this line. And we have the telescope that helped define that as well. So lots to see. And most, I think one of the most important things as well is the Great Equatorial Telescope, one of the largest telescopes of its type in the world that was used to observe double stars about 100 years ago. Really impressive. So very quickly, you mentioned zero degrees longitude. Mm -hmm. Is that scientifically always been the case or is it just something that we decided because we wanted it to be in Greenwich? It's a human decision. So it's it's scientific in that it's defined by the stars. And we But we made a decision to have it in Greenwich, but we could have had it at another observatory. But when they made the decision in the 1880s, most people were already using British maps and charts that were based on Greenwich. So it made the most sense to use the one that people were using anyway. Oh, it's just, it's always so amazing that these big things we kind of take for granted, actually, just because a couple of people decided it probably over dinner. That's brilliant. Uh, well, Louise Devoy from the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! This week's Dangerous Dan, it's all about one of the most effective predators in the world. The shoebill is a brightly coloured bird. It's from Africa. It can grow to about four foot tall. Pretty big for a bird. Now, you know it when you see it because of their thick beak. It's where they get their name from. It's a bill, a beak, a bill, shaped like a big, clumpy shoe. And it helps them dig down into burrows, into the ground to help grab their prey. And it's so strong as well, so they can latch on. They hold on to pretty much anything that comes their way. And these beasts like to eat big. They take down huge fish and eels and lizards and snakes and and also crocodiles. Now, it does it in a terrifying way, too. It's quite mean. It's got long legs, so it wades out into the middle of a river or a swamp, and then it will stand still, waiting, waiting just waiting for a poor creature to swim by and then it swipes its beak down and it gobbles it up it's so strong that it can't get free it swings the catch from side to side so it gets exactly what it wants and it's why the shoebill even though it's got a fancy name is one of the meanest birds in the world time to catch up with one of our favorite gadget geniuses now this is techno mum techno mum engineering explorers This app is so addictive. It was free too. Pretty simple, really. Just matching frogs. I wonder how they made the game. Can't have been that difficult. Shouldn't you be tidying your room? Just finishing this level. So, Mum, here's a question for you. Are games programmers also engineers? Of course. 
They're software engineers. Software is the name for the computer programs which contain the instructions to run apps, games, applications, even machinery. I suppose there are computers in pretty much everything these days. That's right. Not just inside a PC. There will be computer programs inside kitchen appliances, like washing machines, inside the cars we drive, not to mention electronic toys and smartwatches. And they're used in helping manufacture all these things too, whether a car on a production line or a plastic drinking bottle. But how do software engineers make a program? It's not like building a house where you've got bricks and cement to work with. Software has its own building blocks. Computer code. Just like there are hundreds of different languages spoken around the world, there are hundreds of different computer languages which create different types of code. Software engineers learn these languages and use them to create computer code. It's hard enough learning one language. Do you have to learn all the languages? I'm sure there's some very smart computer programmers who do know a large number of computer languages, but often software engineers will specialize in just one. It might depend on the type of programs they're writing. If you want to write programs for the internet or for apps like the one you're playing, then you'll need to learn Java, JavaScript, and perhaps PHP. These are the languages behind the video games you play on your console too. If the programs you write are going to carry out complicated calculations, and if you want to be able to sort out and analyze data, then SQL is the language you need. A very popular language is called C. It's used in lots of ways, often in the background where it can talk to hardware. It might be giving the instructions to a hydraulic robot on a car production line, or running the program that makes your telly or radio work. As there are loads of applications and languages, software engineers will study a range before choosing an area in which to specialize. I definitely choose video game programming. No surprises there. It's a very exciting time to be a software engineer. They're working with cool new technology to shape our homes and lives in many new ways. Alexa, set an alarm for 7am. Computer code is used to connect apps and smart gadgets. A control app can connect with a clock app to set an alarm or connect to a music app to play your favorite tune. It can even connect to smart light bulbs and switches in your house to turn appliances on and off when you're not there. Cool. I wonder if it could tidy up my bedroom or finish my homework for me. Well, in the future it might be possible, but it'd be a lot quicker if you just get on with it and do it yourself. Engineering Explorers, created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology to celebrate the year of engineering. Find out more at funkislive.com/technomum. Let's get into this week's science in the news. What do you think about this? The head of the Nobel Prize Awards it said it won't give out awards because of gender. If someone's a, a, a man or a woman, he said he wants people to win because they've made an important discovery. Uh, not because they have to give it to a certain amount of men or women. In the last 120 years since the prize has been running, 59 prizes have gone to women, and some people are asking for it to be a more even split. But the boss says it's only going to be about the science discoveries that you made. That's all that matters. Also, Russia is sending a film crew to the International Space Station to make their first feature film in space. Yulia Persild is starring in the film. She blasted it off in a spacecraft from Afghanistan the other day, and it docked on the International Space Station just three hours later. And also staying in space, a rocket company from Scotland has made a deal with a spaceport in Shetland, the islands that are north of Scotland, and these could see the first trips to space from the UK launching next year. Now, Skyrora are the company. They've agreed to build a site on the island of Unst to send rockets from the spaceport there uh, in 2022. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. The greatest podcast in the history of the universe. Cannot believe we've won the award for the second time in a row. 
Uh, if you've got something that you'd like answered on the show next week, a science question, leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you leave your name. Give us five stars as well so I can say hello. Uh, while you're on there, it's one of the best places that you can hear loads of Fun Kids podcasts that we make. You can get them on the free Fun Kids app as well and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!